Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. We are recording episode seven. It is February 2nd. Happy Black History Month. Um, Stay tuned. We have a campaign going all month long. Um, and we appreciate all the love that y'all have shown us so far, um, really since the beginning of the podcast, but even just this month, um, seeing the support. We have a lot of um, interesting historical facts on planning, the impacts of planning of Black communities and the contributions of Black planners. So we're excited to share that with you all month. Um, and so Jasmine, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. The snow is finally melting. I actually hope that that was the last bit of snow that we get until next winter because I can't go on. I can't. I'm glad to hear that. I It hasn't been too bad in D.C. It's like warm today and like the next few days, but it looks like it's going to creep back down um, for the rest of the week. So I'm not getting my hopes up yet, but if I could just make it through to the I don't what did they see with the groundhog today that they do? We I know? don't know. I don't follow that. Every year they're like, did the ground see a shot? I'm like, just let me know if it's going to snow again or if I'm good to go. Like, can I put my Uggs away or do I still need them? I have no idea. Right. Can I take out the North Face? Is it breezy? <laughs> so, well, um, thanks everyone again for joining. Um, today, episode seven, we will be discussing the intersections of public safety and public health. And we're super excited. We have our guest speaker with us, Dan Cornfield. Um, and I think Dan is actually our second or only second guest of the season. Um, so we're super excited to have him here with us today. Um, and we've recorded episodes in the past about enforcement um, as it relates to traffic safety and also mental health, um, how it relates to the built environment. Um, and then we had an episode earlier this season on community engagement. And so we felt this was an appropriate time in the season to really kind of blend all that together, both how it interacts in the community and then also kind of behind the scenes, what takes what is currently taking place in a lot of jurisdictions, um, and then also what can be done better. Um, and so we hope that both listeners who may work in the field and also residents um, can hear and learn about how public safety and mental health and behavioral health um, is impacting everyone, really, because um, you could be one moment you're on the street walking and then there could potentially be a crisis situation happening next to you. Um, and then knowing both you know, individually how to respond and then also knowing the role of the government in that too, um, whether that's from a policing um, or health perspective. And so with all that being said, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our guest here. Um, so Dan Cornfield is a consultant, best practices research leader, budget analyst and police officer. Um, and Actually, I do have to say Dan and I met a few years ago um, and I've always been a fan um, and have learned a lot from him um, in, in his work, uh, both prior to some of those roles and during those roles. Um, so we're excited to have him here today. And so Dan spent nearly a decade conducting best practices research in the private sector, followed by five years in city government, 
His private sector work included leading case study writing, benchmarking, and consulting teams at Corporate Executive Board and Frontier Strategy Group, helping cohorts of clients, companies learn from each other, successes, and mistakes. And in 2016, when Dan pivoted to work with city governments, helped them pioneer their best their practices in public safety. He served in Washington, D.C. as a senior budget analyst in the Office of the City Administrator, as a sworn reserve police officer, and as supervisor of the research and analytical service branch for D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department. So welcome, Dan. Thank you, Nemo. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So we're going to have a few questions throughout the episode, um, but first, um, tell us about your background and the work that you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and it's it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, and I listened to um, your community engagement podcast and thought it was really well done. Uh, it's a really challenging space for governments to do right. And I think you were absolutely right that oftentimes, um, not necessarily intentionally, but uh, an agency already knows what it's going to do and then kind of gets a community gathering together to kind of rubber stamp it. Um, and I thought your example of the Seattle uh, example, as well as Jazz, what you said about um, the power of bringing a group, even a small group in front of city council and being prepared to argue your point. Really great. So if people haven't checked out that episode, I appreciate it. It helps me scrub into what you guys are all about. Um, so, and the Seattle example touched on what I'm passionate about, which is best practices, um, not in theory, not an ideal practice somewhere, but what people are actually doing, what's actually working on the street. Um, and how can other people learn from that? And um, I have a bit of an unusual background. Uh, I guess everybody does, to be fair. Everybody's their special story. Um, but I grew up in Sao Paulo, Brazil as a missionary kid there. Um, and so I speak Portuguese. And um, when my parents moved from a kind of high security apartment to a poorer neighborhood there after being in Brazil for a year, I was uh, eight years old. Our neighbors, super friendly, they um, they came and greeted us, got to know us. There were only three houses in the neighborhood that had phones at the time. Um, and they said, you're welcome to knock on the door and use our phone, but whatever you do, don't call the police. Um, the police are not welcome here. They're not your friend. They will not make things better. If you need help, let us know. Um, and that was... Uh, a different introduction to a broken police community relationship in a different country, uh, but it always stuck with me. And, and I remember being angry, even as a little kid, I was like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like these people are supposed to show up and make things better, not worse, you know? Um, and I think that I came to the US for college and I think at first had a naive view that like policing in America is awesome in comparison. Like people are really here to protect and serve, you know? And then I, I realized that it really depends um, which police officers and what you look like if you're calling them and which community you're in and people and sometimes people have the same experience of the neighborhood that I uh, grew up in, which is to say we we are not sure the police are, are here on our side right so that has. Um, that's part of my come from is saying like I think policing can do better and. Um, and I think this really matters because this is kind of where the social contract meets uh, the front lines of people's experiences, right? Where you have the, the force of the state meet encounter people. So that's, that's 
I started to care about public safety from a very young age, and I could say more about that. Um, and then public health as well. So uh, I have a sister who was in and out of hospitals her whole life. And, um, you know, the, one of the first things I remember being angry about was the poor quality of hospital food. I was like, people are sick, they need good food, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, as I started to work in public safety in DC's budget office, I started to realize that a lot of the problems that police officers encountered, firefighters um, and others in the streets were not problems they could solve with the tools that their agency had at their disposal. Um, and oftentimes they're not problems that any agency can solve singularly with the tools at its disposal. And so how can we center help for vulnerable populations, not around an agency's bureaucratic perspective, but instead around a sense of collective responsibility and through, through cross agency working groups. And that's part of what my nonprofit is about today is uh, building working groups that meet weekly where you have police, fire, mediators, mental health professionals, all coming together to discuss how to make the system better and why cases have not worked out well uh, in the last week or the last month. So um, excited about what I'm doing, kind of rambled through a variety of my past and present motivations, but uh, let me pause there and, and see where you want to take me. Thank you, Dan, for sharing your background. And that is definitely a very unique and interesting background. I'm curious about were there any triggers that led you to start your firm, Dignity Best Practices, and how did you come up with the name um, for your firm? Yeah, thanks, Jazz. Um, so I had been thinking ever since I worked in the private sector, uh, I was in a place called Frontier Strategy Group, leading research teams and uh, running executive workshops. And I realized, you know what, I love the methodology of what I'm doing, which is helping organizations learn from each other through uh, exchanging stories, candid stories, not just the pretty, you know, um, publicity stories of we spent a bunch of money and it all went well, but we tried this, it didn't work. We tried that, it didn't work. Then we tried this and it, it was wonderful. And let me tell you about that whole journey, right? Um, so that was great, but then I didn't really care about helping big companies uh, make more money. So I was like, how can I take this skill set but help cities and people who aren't getting the resources they need uh, learn from each other more quickly. Um, and now I've lost my train of thought. What was your question? <laughs> I'm sorry. No I, problem. This was directed at it, but. <laughs> Just your, the firm, Dignity Best Practices. Oh yeah. Was there a trigger to say, this is why I'm gonna start this work that I'm doing. And then tell us a little yes. bit more about that work. Yes, so, um, so I went to work in city government first so that I would know something about what I was talking about. Um, but uh, I was planning to eventually start a firm. This was accelerated by uh, the murder of George Floyd um, because of a few things. One is that that just opened up a national conversation. And sometimes there are these moments of crisis and opportunity where things that have been frozen in a particular way of being for a long time unfreeze. And um, and that moment is a window of opportunity that refreezes again, right? So, uh, and I hope that, you know, we have the attention span as a nation to keep working on the innovations in public safety that started uh, about two years ago now, almost. Um, but 
when I think about the financial crisis collapse in 2008, 2009, it seemed like there was nothing more important in the world than financial sector reform and fixing the banking system, you know? And we were, I was like, of course, they're going to get this close to right this time because everybody is focused on it. Like every intelligent person around the world who has anything to do with public policy is like, how do we fix the banking system? And three years later, we weren't thinking about that anymore. We weren't talking about it anymore as a nation or as a, as a, I mean, specialists still were, but it wasn't front and center in the national dialogue. So I was afraid that if I didn't launch now that I wouldn't get a chance to be relevant in the conversations that I want to have and things would refreeze before I got to be a part of it. So I quit my job at the police department and launched this nonprofit. And uh, my fiance then, now my wife was uh, kind enough to say, if, you know, I know you have some savings. If you don't make any money for, you know, a year, we can float that and I'll support you and we'll get by. And she really believed in what I was doing. So that was awesome. Um, I'm gonna stick beside him. That's what she said. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that was a year ago, um, and uh, and it's been a it's been a great journey, um, and I've had help along the way from lots of people. So I'm very grateful for for that as well. But uh, so it had been a dream for a while. The dream evolved through my budget work of not just saying let me help cities learn from each other, but specifically the intersections between public safety and public health. Let's work on what that means for vulnerable populations. And what I mean there is things like homeless people, uh, people struggling with substance abuse, opioids, uh, domestic violence victims, families struggling with their kids not attending school. Um, there's a whole series of issues where somebody might intersect with the police officer one day and a social worker the next day might touch that same family. And they might have no idea that another representative from the government was just there and was trying to interact with being helpful in the same situation. Um, and uh, mental health crisis is a, a big part of that intersection as well. Um, even though maybe 4% of police calls get labeled as mental health calls, probably about 40% of police calls are related to some kind of mental health struggle. And, and, but they're being labeled as other things like disorderly conduct or investigate the trouble or person down or, you know, but mental health is, you know, it, and it's not just in struggling communities, it's everybody, right? And we, I think we've gotten more attention to this in the pandemic that um, anybody can suffer from a mental health crisis and go through a really rough time. So um, I think it's, it's really important. Yeah, when you mentioned the pandemic and kind of the freezing of the unfreezing of movements that have been in, stuck in place, I think I definitely think the pandemic also showed the mental health aspect. Like it became a moment to practice self care, became a moment to check in. The time mm -hmm. to get therapy and seek resources also became a moment. Um, similarly, it's like, it makes me so happy to see, and I hope it, it, hope it stays, you know, I hope it stays that way. Um, you know, even to have conversations in the workplace around, um, self-care and, um, yeah. So just see, seeing how it connects to with how the nation is currently observing police departments and interactions. Um, 
And another theme I was hearing, and I'm curious, we might get into this more. I'm so curious about these working groups. And you mentioned um, helping private companies learn from each other. Um, I'm curious how any potential resistance um, happens or are more are groups more likely to be open to learning from each other when they don't know each other? Like, how does that work when they're all in the same government or in the same place? Yeah. Um... So I, of course, haven't worked for most city governments or county governments, so I can only speak from a, a small subset of experiences. But, um, you know, I had a, um, I had, I think, a mistaken fear impression about the public sector, which is that there would be a bunch of people working for the government that were just playing solitaire and saying, nah, it's really hard to fire me. So I'm just going to sit here and not do my job. And that is not something that I found in city government. I found that most people were doing their job, wanted to do a good job. Um, but I did find a different issue that was troubling, which is a lot of hierarchy. And so um, if new ideas come from the top, people act excited about them. But if they come from the middle or the bottom, people kind of say like, well, that sounds like a pain in the ass. Let's just do what we're supposed to do, which is what we've already been doing. Um, and, uh, and so sometimes there's a staffing model mindset in government, which is I'm here to make my person above me look good as opposed to a team model mindset, which is we're all here to solve problems together. Um, and um, so I was, I was kind of surprised by and saddened by the lack of like whiteboarding in government, which is like, let's write up a problem on the whiteboard and like then figure out brainstorm, what can we do about this? How can we make it better? Six months from now, how can we get in a better place? Um, some agencies have healthier cultures than others, of course, and inside some of them are better at that. But when it came to convening work across agencies, a lot of the time I would talk to somebody inside an agency, they'd be like, well, that's not us. Uh, and it's not our job, and nor, do we, nor would it be appropriate for me to convene another agency and tell them that they're not doing their job well. Um, but uh, so I think it works most effectively when somebody from a central government position does the convening, whether it's a city uh, administrator's office or a county manager's office um, or a deputy mayor or a deputy county administrative officer that oversees multiple agencies and can get with their counterpart even across the aisle. So you can get like a deputy mayor of public safety and a deputy mayor of public health to come together and say, we're going to work on this together. Then the agencies, I think, have the permission to say, yeah, we are supposed to be having this conversation. Um, and it can, and with the belief that it'll go somewhere, that there's gonna be, you know, people will be willing to spend money or change rules to make something really happen. Um, at the same time, I mean, if you just talk to the people on the front lines, whether it's a police officer or a trash collector or somebody at the DMV off hours, I mean, they'll, they're very friendly and they'll talk very candidly about things that have gotten better and should get better, but haven't yet, you know? So it's not like people don't have these ideas, but I think oftentimes we haven't created a way for those ideas to uh, come up to the decision makers in a way that they're taken seriously within city government. I think the 
the structure of funding also makes that a challenge, right? So every department has their own stream of um, funding sources, either that's from the revenue that they collect or from the proceeds that they're allocated in the budget process. And so this is my pot and I'm going to do what I need to do with mine. And that's mm -hmm. your part, social services. You're going to do what you need to do with yours. And that's your part, planning. And you're going to do what you need to do with yours. But if it's not a program that's already a shared line item between all the departments then i i see that it it doesn't become that collaboration that actually that we actually need yes um yeah there's a whole bunch of ways in which we naturally create silos and budget is one of them uh for sure and um and i think there's also kind of a compliance mindset which is the default in government like my job is to not do my job follow the rules and not get in trouble as opposed to to make this work better this year than it worked last year um and um it's understandable um that a city especially or an agency that has sometimes been out of compliance or been the subject of losing lawsuits and so forth would take that kind of defensive posture of like let me just make sure i you know keep my nose clean and keep my head down and staying out of the news is great, you know, <laughs> uh, but um, what you see in a more kind of entrepreneurial mindset in the business sector that I think we could use some in the, in the government sector is, let me make good news, you know, let me have these creative ideas and not just play defense, but play presence. How can I, how can my presence make a difference? And not to say that individuals don't try to do that, but I don't think the system is geared to empower those individuals oftentimes. So um, I think we are kind of approaching this, but what would you say are the current and emerging practices in public safety and behavioral health and how some of those perceptions may be viewed from both the general public and law enforcement? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, these are each huge realms, so I, I'm probably not going to do it justice to speak about all of the individual things going on in each realm. Uh, and I think there are exciting things, exciting ways in which public safety is by itself trying to become better at public safety and public health is by itself trying to become better at public health. Um, but the intersections of the two, which is where I focus the most, I can say a little bit more about, which is um, for, for a long time, if you called 911, you could only get police or fire as an emergency response. Um, and in most places, that's still true. Um, but one of the uh, big movements in the intersection between public safety and public health is to say, just like we expect that if somebody breaks into our house, we'll get a police response quickly if we pick up the phone. And we expect that if our house is on fire, we'll get a, a firefighter response quickly. And if I'm having a heart attack, I'll get an ambulance. So those three services are built into our expectations of the local uh, service infrastructure. Let's add a fourth service, which is uh, professional mental health aid in the case of a mental health emergency. And um, there is a new phone number coming online. You may have heard of it, 988. Um, nationally is gonna be a new three digit number, just like 911 that you can dial for a mental health emergency. Um, starting July 22nd of this year, if all goes well with implementation. Um, however, I think 
uh, it's going to take a long time to retrain people who are used to calling 911 to call 988. Um, and so part of what I'm working on with uh, local governments is let's still create a connection from 911 to mental health call centers and mental health mobile crisis teams that are out in the field and can come to your house if, if invited to do so. Um, because uh, 988 is great, but a lot of people are still gonna go through 911 and that's still just gonna get you a police officer, even if that's not what the best fit is for that kind of call. Um, and I think um, that's, a, so that's a really exciting space is to say, in the moment of an emergency, um, which could be um, someone who's contemplating suicide, it could be someone who uh, has experienced a huge loss, like their spouse died and they're just not eating or sleeping and now they're starting to hallucinate because they're not taking care of themselves. Um, it could be uh, you know, a single father whose teenage son is like breaking things in the house if he doesn't know how to control his son. Um, there are lots of situations where um, today we call the police, but having someone show up with a gun and in body armor isn't necessarily the signal that immediately soothes things and helps. And, and the other thing, and some police officers are great at this, don't get me wrong. I've seen police officers be amazing in crisis situations, very personable. Um, but they also, police officers have a lot of calls on their board. So you're really only supposed to stay at a call, you know, it depends on the call, but maybe 20 minutes and then move on because you've got another call to go to and another call. And if you really want to help someone in crisis, it starts with relationship. And so what one of the things that a mobile crisis team can do is sit there with you for two hours, three hours, talk to you about your family, what's going on, start to build a connection. Um, because that's, without trust, you're not gonna help someone, right? And without a human relationship, you're not gonna help someone in, in the deepest ways. Uh, I mean, if you need to pull somebody out of a well, all you need is a rope, but um, if you need to pull somebody out of a, a mental well, you first have to build that trust, which is like the rope to pull somebody out of that well. Um, so I'm very excited about this. And then um, the, um, the emergency response is for the, just the first step in a system. Um, so um, the next question is, if somebody can't uh, stabilize at home, where do you take them? Or where do you encourage them to go? And the traditional options have been jail or hospital. Um, and both of those are unpleasant options uh, for a lot of people. Um, and so there's an emerging space of crisis stabilization centers, crisis response centers that are, instead of kind of the fluorescent lit austere waiting room of a hospital emergency department, you walk into a living room type setting, sit on a couch, there's paintings on the wall. And so you don't have to wait three hours to be seen, you wait, uh, you know, 10 minutes to be seen. And, um, and they can keep you up to 23 hours in some cases, there's a different set of legal requirements if you're gonna hold somebody for 24 hours or more and they have to have a bed and so forth. But these centers are, are great when they work well. Uh, the last thing someone needs when they're having one of the worst days of their life is often to be incarcerated or to sit in a hospital emergency room for hours and hours. So I'm excited about that next step. And then there's more steps. There's the follow-up, right? How do we get good at um, keeping that relationship alive? And this has to do with the case management and 
um, side of, of human services. Um, and then ultimately, how do we equip communities to better care for themselves so it doesn't get to that emergency moment, right? And so uh, there's an organization called NAMI, for example, the National Association of Mental Illness that um, has local chapters and those lo local chapters have peer support groups for family members taking care of people with mental illness, which is really important because um, if, uh, if you've ever taken care of somebody with an illness of any sort, whether it's a mental illness or a different kind of illness, it's taxing for the caretaker, not just for the sick person, right? Um, and if that lasts a long time, um, that person can be taken out of the loop because they burn out and then that person, that support is gone and then you get a crisis situation. So um, uh, there's what's called the continuum of care, you know, all the way from community supports to emergency, to stabilization, to long-term care, to community supports again. Um, and each part of that continuum of care doesn't function as well as it should oftentimes. But what I really like to focus on is the handoffs between the pieces because people get lost in the cracks. Like you might be held in an emergency, an emergency uh, room, then sent to a psych ward because you're an involuntary commit for being a danger to yourself. And then when you get out, you're supposed to have you know, an ongoing kind of follow-up from somebody, but they might never show up or you might never call that number. So how do we connect the gaps between these different kinds of care so that people don't fall through the cracks in between? Yeah, I think those are all excellent points. The emphasis on having the right crisis respondent when you need one. So a police officer when you need one, a firefighter when you need one, an EMT when you need one, and a mental health professional or service worker when you need one. And mm -hmm. then that in social services, we call them wraparound services, but the continuum of care is the same idea of that person having the services that they need so they can succeed in life. And that takes us back to local government because often that's your city or municipality or county that's handling all of those services the police the fire the housing that you need the transportation that you need to get to places in that whole loop of things and so I think that's amazing I know there's been outside of kind of public safety and public health there's been that third loop of housing and so being secure in your place to live and that relates to uh, homelessness services and things like that mm -hmm. A question we wanted to bring up was, I guess it gets more into the organizational structure of municipal government is how does that police department fit within the local government organizational chart and their city leadership? And then within that question, if you could discuss the relationship or the cycle between legislation and enforcement and policing. So how do the laws that are established by city councils and mayors and ordinances and things like that relate to the practices of policing and how might how might there be room for growth or for change in that area yeah wow there's a lot packed into that um and i'll do my best there's 18,000 police departments in the united states and each one does its own thing to some extent um so there's not a uh, kind of mandatory curriculum for police training nationally. Some states do have a mandatory curriculum. So like the state of Washington, uh, not Washington DC, but Pacific Northwest state of Washington 
um, sends every police officer in the state through the same academy. So they have a consistency of the training that they're getting, but that's kind of unusual. Um, and Not out to um, my home state. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Seattle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, police departments usually are one of the biggest expenditures of, of city governments. Um, and um, sometimes county governments, and there's also sometimes a sheriff's office, which is a different thing because police are appointed uh, and sheriffs are elected. Um, and I could say more about that if you're interested, but um, also, I mean, we think of like LAPD when we think of police departments because it's it's in the movies, right? And they're like giant organizations and you could get stuck being a low level, you know, detective somewhere in a back room and you were supposed to have been promoted five times, but, you know, nobody appreciated you. Uh, but the average police department in the United States has something like 12 officers. So a lot of them are very small organizations and there's a big difference between a, a township police department and a a big city police department as well. So just to kind of mention that, but um, legislation is a is an overlapping thing, you know, in our, our beautiful and messy federated states of America, we have national legislation, we have state legislation, and we have municipal legislation. Um, so uh, in the academy, that's part of what you learn is like what the rules are for the particular jurisdiction you're going to be policing in, um, which are different in different places. So, um, for example, it's become common these days for it to be legislated that if there's a case of domestic violence, there's a mandatory arrest. Um, but that wasn't all of a sudden everywhere true. It started in Minneapolis, I believe. And then people thought that was a good idea because of a particular study that um, showed some positive outcomes for the victims of domestic violence when an arrest was made. Um, and then it just kind of spread. And so these days it's very common. And I think the pendulum has swung so far that people are starting to question, wait, are all of these arrests a good idea? Because, um, not everything that qualifies as an assault to a police officer is necessarily something that it's worth taking somebody out of their home, maybe having them lose their job, um, but it depends, right? So like technically in DC, if someone pushes someone, that's an assault. Um, and if I hear that a man pushed a woman or a woman pushed a man or a man a man or a woman a woman and they're in a romantic relationship or their family members, I'm supposed to put one of them in handcuffs. Uh, as a police officer and like a push is something that's going to happen in the natural course of human affairs and it's very different than uh, a more serious act of violence right um, so uh, I think legislation sometimes swings in one direction and then people start to see the unintended outcomes of that legislation and then it swings in another direction and hopefully those swings come towards a balance towards a more perfect mean um, if you're an Aristotelian optimist um, but, uh, the, but sometimes it's just kind of manic swings. Like it swings way too far in one direction. It swings way too far in another direction. Um, as far as enforcement, um, police officers usually have a lot of discretion in how they respond to a situation. Um, but 
sometimes that discretion is taken away from them. Like in the case of domestic violence, that has often been the case is to say, uh, I think there was a fear and an understandable fear. Um, increasingly, we have more women on police forces, which is awesome because I think women make great police officers, but um, that men would talk to, go to a family with a domestic violence situation talk to the man and be like he'd be like oh you know how it is man and be like oh yeah like she you know my wife's really annoying too sometimes or something and then they would let it go and that's terrible right you don't you do not want sexism to be mixing with um uh, a domestic violence affair and then it not being enforced in the way that it should be taken seriously but i but it the, the cure sometimes is not necessarily worse than the disease, but creates its own problems um, in terms of taking uh, judgment away. Um, there was actually one of the results of the police reform in Washington, DC, where I live um, in July of 2020, was to take away the requirement that police officers make an arrest if they see a crime committed, uh, which had, had been in the legislation, a requirement um, in DC locally. That was, you know, local legislation. And that I think is positive because I can tell you, um, you know, an easy example of is like the war on drugs isn't always good for anybody, for example, right? And so I've been in cases where we come up to a homeless person, they've thrown a crack pipe in the bushes and like technically, I know they have illegal drug paraphernalia. I'm supposed to make an arrest. And it's even harder for officers with body-worn cameras these days to say like, actually, I'm not gonna make that arrest because everything's caught on camera, right? Um, so I've seen police officers fish the like crack pipe out from outside of camera view, step on it, throw it in the trash can, and then kind of say, I don't think anything happened here. And, and that's a compassionate response, you know, but, it's better if that's not an illegal compassionate response. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, I actually didn't, didn't personally appreciate every aspect of the reform legislation, but I appreciated that aspect of it because it did say um, a one size fits all response to enforcement can lead us to a darker place sometimes than people exercising compassion. Thank you for that. Um, and really for those, examples to for listeners to visualize what it looks like on the ground um and that the one size fits all in the historical um views of of what is what is deemed to be a criminal and not um is not always perfect um i know t in dc as well i think a lot of most a lot of parts of the criminal code hadn't been updated in over 100 years mm -hmm. um and um, that recently got through, um, I think a few months ago. Um, and so, and I know a lot of other, and uh, you mentioned the, the, the diversity in police departments, um, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of what's deemed to be criminal did come from like kind of a centralized text or a, like example or body of work in the past, um, so. So DC has its own criminal code, um, but then there are federal criminal statutes. And, and sometimes those overlap in confusing ways. So for example, marijuana for personal recreational use is legalized in DC, 
but it's not legalized by the federal government. And so the park police will still arrest you for it in Rock Creek Park. Um, and so sometimes you have these overlapping differences of what the criminal code is locally versus uh, federally, which is interesting. Now that's just an interesting point. Because <laughs> um, I get, since I know you, you talked briefly about sheriff being an elected official and police officers, um, being hired or appointed and so then that also gets into the I think DC is a particularly interesting case because of the different layers of uh police presence you have the Capitol police you have DC police and then there's another police realm and so whereas in a, a regular town that's not a uh, district you just have your sheriff's office your county police your local police department and like your state troopers uh, but that does bring up a good point of certain things are legal in at one level and then not legal at another level and so officers at different levels can make different um, arrest or enforce things in in a different way and I, that's what we kind of when we talk about the relationship that's kind of what we mean it's like and, and when it comes to another layer of enforcement is also what the prosecutors will do right because there's the whole level of who gets arrested for what which is a police decision and then there's the prosecutors who decide whether to take it to court or just let people out or plea bargain or what and that's a whole nother layer of different judgment being exercised um which is also different from place to place in terms of what people you know it you have things going on in big cities where people are like, that's not worth our time, just let them out. And if that were to happen in a small community that hasn't seen any crime for a little while, they'd be like, oh, right, we're going to throw the book at them. This person's going to jail for a long time for the same exact activity. Um, so it's, it's not even in how it's, how it's treated in different places. Yeah, they're prosecuting and they have, I remember from some, um, readings I was doing in school, the different minimum standards for how the sentencing standards and sentencing minimums, and then you get to the judge. And so, yeah, tons of layers. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I think that relationship between the public health and the public safety is an important one to always bring up. Like, are we doing more harm than, than good? Uh, I always think about a homeless person and them having what appears to be like an episode and right and someone feeling uncomfortable in that situation making that person feel uncomfortable and dialing 911 and the officer coming and this person very well very very well may just need mental health attention like some type of services but them being arrested because I their their experience was distracting or inconvenient or made me feel unsafe mm -hmm. and so yeah, I, I really want those wraparound services to continue because I'm all and then I feel as a person of color, I'm always very nervous. And this goes to your earlier point about calling the police because I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't want this situation to escalate. I'm afraid that just because I'm like and sometimes I might deal with something that really makes me uncomfortable, but I don't want the situation to then result in harm for another person who just made me feel uncomfortable. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's a good thing like I don't think that's how society should work that actually reminds me of um, another exciting space I think in the intersections of public health and public safety which is the understanding of um, child and adolescent 
and early adult brain development. Um, and increasingly, police departments are having trainings for their officers about adolescent brain development so that they understand why teenagers are acting certain ways and don't just blame them individually the same way that they would blame a 35 year old if they were acting that way, which is interesting. Um, and creating empathy for how the fight flight response is geared to like, sometimes people will run from the police and you're like, well, that must, they must be doing something really wrong. And you're like, no, they're just scared. Or they just think it'd be funny to run in front of their friends. Um, and like that can create a really bad situation if police don't say like, wait a second, did I actually see them have a weapon? Did I actually see them? Am I just making a bunch of assumptions here based on the behavior that I'm seeing? And so I think that's another exciting space uh, because a lot of the unfortunate interactions between police and the community happen with um, young people as well. Yeah, is that the, um, the prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. that doesn't get developed until you're you're 25 um yeah that's that's very related to it yeah okay I was like as someone who recently had their prefrontal cortex developed <laughs> I, I can definitely understand like why would I do that um but that's really I didn't know that um piece in terms of the education and training and awareness of like you know, and I can imagine an officer may come on the scene and they don't necessarily know the age of the person, but kind of extending more grace in terms of the, um, the danger that is actually being posed mm -hmm. um, or the actual perception of, of a young person and how they would feel and how they would respond. So that's really interesting to hear. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of to really sum it all up, um, I think there's been so much great information that has been shared. And so if someone's listening and they're moved and motivated and riled up, and um, I'm curious, what would you, what would you tell them? What, would, what can they do to learn more? Um, and if they want to influence their local town, county, mm -hmm. state government, um, and like you said, most departments are only 12 officers. So, uh, you know, perhaps their reach may actually be, um, different than a reach of a big city, um, what would you tell them to, to do to, to research and potentially influence their, their local jurisdictions? Yeah. Um, I mean, I loved your, again, your community engagement podcast talked about doing the research, finding the forums. If you're in a forum where you don't feel like your voice is getting heard, go a step up, like find that person's boss, you know, sometimes, or, or find a different forum because Usually you can make your voice heard. Don't, don't just get stuck with somebody who's ignoring you. Um, but um, I would also say like, consider careers in public service. I think it's a really exciting time right now to be in this space. Um, and it's not easy work, it's not for everybody, but um, if you, you know, whatever your skill set is, uh, cities can use you. You know, if you're good at math, go change, change things through the budget world or whatever. But if you don't want to be behind a computer, go out in the field, be a social worker, knock on people's doors, do better than we have in the past, um, or be an HR person and help us pay the social workers more. You know, everything connects, right? You know, social workers burn out. It's a burnout job and it doesn't have to be. How can we make it a more sustainable job? Consider being a police officer, honestly. If you really don't like the way that police do their job, consider being a police officer because if everybody who doesn't like it doesn't join that profession you're left with only the people who do it the other way 
I would say um, do your public engagement, but also consider public service. Be the change you want to see in the world. I like that, Dan. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Nemo, do you have any takeaways from today's episode? Yeah, I think the biggest one um, is partially in the name of Dan's nonprofit. Um, <laughs> and so that's the relationship building and then the dignity piece of how do we view our fellow neighbor who's on the street or our, our fellow human on the street? They don't, we don't even have to, it doesn't even have to be a town we reside in. Um, and what level of grace can we extend um, whether we are working in a profession where we can change it or on an individual and community level. I think the things that we're talking about in this podcast episode are conversations that also need to happen around family tables around holidays and need to happen with friends. Um, I know I correct my friends a lot. We've seen, I almost feel like recently in the news um, around a lot of people who have chosen to take their life and a lot and people will often say, oh, this, did you hear this person committed suicide? And I always say, hey, just so you know, um, when you phrase it that way, it criminalizes the choice that someone made. And a lot of times people will, will ask me, I'm like, really? I didn't know that. And I'm like, well, I'm just telling you, just so you know, this is, this is a better way to frame it. Um, and so that's like a little small part I, I can do on a day-to-day -day basis to change the narrative of how we view things. And so I would just encourage everyone to, to really do the same and do the education and share with people. That's great. That's great. And thank you for having me. And also coming back to one of your big themes of the podcast, uh, public safety and public health are very local issues, right? So um, getting involved with saying, how is it working here? Is it as or more important than saying, how is it working in theory in the nation? Um, so, so inform yourself about what parts are working well that you can be proud of in your locality and say thank you to the people that have done a good job there because people get discouraged but then also be a voice that doesn't give up saying this part could be better um and i i just uh i'm really pleased that you're reaching out to listeners who are not necessarily um already in the public policy space but are kind of adjacent and curious uh because i think that we could use um, their passion and their brains and uh whether it's as an engaged citizen or something uh, more professionalized down there. I know, and thank you, Dan. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, we may, I feel like we, there was so much we can even squeeze in. So yeah. have your part, maybe there'll be a part two next sure. season. We shall see. Um, but yeah, thank you again for your time and joining us. Um, and to everyone listening, we hope you um, got something out of it. Um, I know I did. I have like things I wrote down to research later. Um, and you can join us every other Tuesday um, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, Joe.